I like to always begin my message with these ridiculous questions. And so here I go again. Are you ready? If you could choose the following superpowers, and I'm going to tell you what those superpowers are in just a moment. But if you could choose the following abilities, which would you choose? Never needing to eat, never needing to go to the bathroom, never needing to shower, or never needing to sleep. Which of those awesome powers would you choose if that was available to you? Never needing to eat, never needing to go to the bathroom, never needing to shower, or never needing to sleep. If I had to take an educated guess, I am willing to bet that most, if not all of you, would probably choose never needing to sleep. I mean, after all, we do live in this city that prides itself as the one that never sleeps. And of course, one of the mantras that we always tell people, maybe to our own pride, of how busy we are, and you couple that with the various stimulant drinks that we're always shoving down our throats, I think it's a fair educated guess to say that hands down, if we had to choose amongst those awesome powers, we would choose never needing to sleep sleep. Yes. But of course we know biologically speaking, that is impossible. You cannot not sleep. We all need to sleep. Otherwise you die. We know this. And yet what we do not know is why that is so. Christian, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why God created us in such a way to where we would need to sleep for six to eight hours? Hmm? Have you ever wondered why God created us with that kind of limitation, especially when you consider all the wonderful things that we could do for his name, for his glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom? Why does he rob us, so to speak, six to eight hours that we could put into to further expand his kingdom? Well, if you look at the Bible, it will spit out many various and valid answers to that question. But one particular answer is one that maybe most of you would never have ever thought of. And that is the answer of the next generation. One of the reasons why God doesn't let you have the ability of never needing to sleep is for the sake of the next generation. You're thinking to yourself, what? Care to explain yourself, Pastor? Well, I will. But first, we're continuing our vision sermon series that we plan to do every new year. And the whole point of this series is to look at the various core components of our new vision statement that we have as a church in light of God's call upon us to be an independent church. And again, if you're not aware of what this vision statement is, either because it's your first Sunday or because you have very, very bad memory, here it is again. NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously displaying their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities family and work life and their compassion to the poor number two selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks which we call oikos and then finally to confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes queens new york city the world and the next generation today we're taking a look at that last core statement that i just read with regard to an inclusive community but we're going to zero in on those last two words that end that statement which is the next generation i want to talk to you guys today about why we as a church prioritize a lot of our time a lot of our energy and a lot of our money for the sake of the next generation for the children And to do so, we're going to take a look at a classic text that speaks on the next generation, Psalm 127, that not only explains to us why the next generation is so important, but more specifically about why you and I need the next generation. Yes, you and I need the next generation. As we take a look at this psalm, it's going to tell us why. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, you need the next generation because you are mortal. You need the next generation because, first of all, you are mortal. Number two, you need the next generation because you're evil. 
You need the next generation because you are evil. And finally, number three, you need the next generation because you need Jesus. So three reasons why you need the next generation. You're mortal, you're evil, and you need Jesus. Let's jump right in. First, you need the next generation because, first of all, you're mortal. Down in Knoxville, Tennessee, there exists a philosophy professor who teaches at the University of Tennessee by the name of Dr. John Nolt. And the reason why I'm drawing your attention to his existence is because a few years back, he wrote an online article entitled, Arguments for and Against Obligations to Future Generation. And he starts off this intriguing article with the following opening statement, quote, what reason do we have to care about future generations? They're nothing to us. They don't even exist yet and will be dead by the time they do. Parents may care about their kids and grandkids, but why bother about anyone beyond that? Now, chances are there are some of you in here who probably agree with Dr. Noel. Of course, you'll never say it to my face because I'll be very offended if you did. But if we're honest, some of us in here probably would agree with Dr. Noel's opening statement, right? In other words, some of us in here do not have any concern for the future generation of people who don't even exist yet. And when they do, will be long gone. In fact, some of you may even take it even further where you don't even care about the current next generation that's in existence now. I mean, after all, you might be thinking, isn't the concerns for the next generation, isn't that something that's only reserved for politicians who are trying to get into office with moving speeches? Isn't that the concern of these Fortune 500s who are trying to create products so that the younger generation of our society who spend the most that stimulate our economy, that they would purchase their products? Isn't the concerns of the next generation confined to those kinds of people? Well, if you're here today and you consider yourself a genuine follower of Jesus, the answer to those questions is no. Why? Well, just in case you weren't aware, Christian, one of the things that our Lord Jesus, our master, has told us that if you want to be his followers, you have to care about the things that he cares about, which also includes you have to be concerned for those that he is concerned for. And guess which group within society that Jesus had a particular concern for that hardly nobody were concerned for? Survey says, ding, 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 children, the next generation. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, for there we're going to see an instance of this being played out. Starting in the 13th verse, we read, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. In the original Greek, it actually says that he was PO'd with his disciples. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Interesting. Turns out Jesus was very, very concerned for the next generation. And yet, just like his original followers, we followers today of his have hardly any concern, if we're honest, for the next generation. And the question is why? Why is that the case? Well, to answer that question, we look at the first two verses of our passage for today in Psalm 127. Let's take a look at the first two verses, and it reads as follows. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Interesting. Here the psalmist is describing the types of people who we would easily label as the overdriven, overambitious, busy person, kind of like the stereotypical New Yorker. Am I right? Right? 
this sounds like a typical characteristic of many of you. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about this description of these overdriven, very busy people that the psalmist is describing is that he's all describing them within a particular generation. The types of people he's describing here all are within the same generation represented through this metaphor of a house and a city. You see, in the ancient world, a house was built by an individual. Typically, a young man would build a household by getting married, having kids, and having a steady occupation, a vocation, and hence he would build a household. A city was built by a collective of like individuals who all within the same generation would try to build and secure a city for its flourishing, okay? And by referring to this one particular generation, people of the same generation, the psalmist is trying to make a very profound point. And what point is that? The point is this, as spectacular and as impressive a particular generation may be from both an individual standpoint and from a community standpoint, the psalmist nevertheless goes on to say that all of their amazing accomplishments, all of their hard work, all of the things that come out of their hard work, he says is what? It's in vain. Or as one translation puts it, it's a complete waste of time. Now, why would the psalmist say such a thing? Well, consider these wise words from King Solomon as he writes about this very issue in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 17, we read this. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Solomon is trying to draw to our awareness something in with regard to all of our hard work and all the wonderful things that come out of our hard work, all the blessings that come out of our hard work. And what is he drawing our attention to? What is he trying to make us be aware of? He's trying to make us aware that all the wonderful things, all the great accomplishments that come out of our hard work, it's all going to outlive us, okay? It's going to continue on whether we're here or not. All the great fruits of your labor, all the great achievements that you've done will continue on after you are dead, which means who is left to take over and to ensure that what you've worked so hard for continues on? The next generation, right? They're the ones who can determine whether or not all the hard work that you put into, all the sleepless nights that you put in will actually make any continuing effort after you are gone, right? See, Solomon is pointing out something that we need to be very mindful of, something that we should be very careful for. And that is, you must be careful for the next generation because they have the capability of making your life completely insignificant, of making your life null and void because they can do in such a short amount of time with all the fruits of your labor that you spent your entire life to build up. They can wipe out the full significance of the life that you poured into as you are living. Do you get that? No? Let me see if I can give you a microcosmic example from my own personal life. My son Judah 
You know, he loves to build things. Okay, so for Christmas, we bought him these magnetic sets, right, these beautiful, colorful magnetic sets where he can build a bunch of stuff. And this kid, I mean, he's like maybe a future architect. We don't know, right? I think he's going to be a future pastor because, you know, after all, i got to pass on these books to somebody, right? But anyway, we think he could have it in him to be an engineer, an architect, because he just lo- he's so focused. Literally, he'll spend 30 minutes building something. He'll build a little house, then he'll build a block, then he'll build a city. I mean, the guy is so focused, so interested, nothing can distract him. He is laser focused. Well, one day, he was building something, kind of looked like a little city, right? And he was working hard, a good 30 minutes on it, right? Then without warning, it just crashed. So what just happened? He was like looking around, I don't get it. Turns around, who's there? His baby sister, Selah who is now crawling. And of course she sees her opa building this thing. It's so colorful, so pretty. So she crawls over and she reaches down just a little delicate touch and it knocks the whole thing down. And he starts crying, understandably so. Why? Because his younger sister completely made the last 30 minutes of his life insignificant. 30 minutes that he poured blood, sweat, and tears into. He invested his life into it and his little sister was able to just wipe it out like it was nothing, making him in those 30 minutes like as if he didn't matter at all. Why? All because he wasn't paying attention to the next generation, right? (laughs) Putting all this together, what's the first takeaway lesson? The lesson is this. The reason why so many of us do not think about the next generation is because we completely undermine the impact that the next generation can have on the significance of our life, okay? (laughs) We're so busy spending our entire lives trying to achieve great achievements, trying to accomplish great accomplishments, that we don't realize that we're jeopardizing those very achievements and accomplishments by ignoring the next generation, by having no concern for the next generation, by not training and investing and pouring into the next generation so that they could continue on and maybe even build up and magnify the impact of what we're doing now after we are long gone. Now think about what I just said for a moment because embedded within it is a profound implication If the next generation is important because they're the only ones who can continue the good work and achievements that we do through our many, many sleepless nights, and the only reason why they can do that is because they are the ones who stick around because we are mortal, that is, one day we are no longer going to be here, what is the underlying assumption for those of us who have no concern for the next generation? What is the underlying assumption in which we operate, maybe even at a subconscious level, that we're not aware of? Isn't it the assumption that maybe... Just maybe we operate our lives as if we are not mortal. That functionally we don't imagine our own end. That one day we will no longer be anymore. Isn't that one of the underlying assumptions in which we operate? Huh? In other words, we deny our mortality. We deny that we are limitless. Or that we're limited. That we think we're limitless. Do you know when you deprive your body of sleep that is a tacit way of saying that you have no limits that you're not immortal and you know what the bible says of those who think that they are not mortal evil evil why would you say that pastor john well think about it if you claim to be immortal if you claim to be limitless you're claiming to be god and if a person claims to be god when in fact they are not god scripture says that is evil and you just Don't even know it. And yet here's what's so beautifully ironic. This evil assumption that says we're limitless, this evil assumption that says we are not mortal, evidenced by the fact that we think that we can go without sleep, right? 
that very assumption, which manifests in us and not being concerned for the next generation, is actually challenged by the very next generation itself. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Let me explain by going to my next point. You need the next generation because you are evil. Read again our passage starting in the second half of our uh, section, starting in verse 3. We read this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Here the psalmist spotlights the next generation in the form of children. Now, again, if there are those of you in here who are not parents, you don't have your own children, please, please do not tune me out. Because if you remember from last week's sermon, for those of you who are here, you would hear me say that even though some of you are not biological parents and maybe never be biological parents, you better believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be, if you're not already going to be, a spiritual parent. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus, you may not be a biological parent and maybe never will be. But yes, indeed, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be called by God, if you haven't been already, to be a spiritual parent. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, what do I mean by that? A spiritual parent. Well, here's the thing. Scripture tells us that God calls Christians to invest in people, to invest in relationships the way parents invest in their children. This is why the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, never was a parent himself, can say what he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we studied last week. Listen to what he says there. He says, uh, we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And you know that we treated you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your life in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Christian, you are to invest in people the way a mom invests in her child by the way she nurtures him, nurturing him in such a way that he would grow out of their own immaturity, right? And not only that, Christian, you are to invest in people like a way a father invests in his own child. How does a father invest in his own? He invests in his child in such a way that they can walk away from him to where they won't have an unhealthy codependence on him permanently, but instead walk on his own or her own two feet to where eventually that this person can invest in someone else, pass it on to pay it forward, so to speak. That's what it means to be a spiritual parent. So, Here is the thing. Just because you're not a biological parent doesn't mean that you're not called to be a spiritual parent. You don't need to be a biological parent to be a spiritual parent. All you need to be is a Christian. However, with that said, one of the things that you have to understand is that even though you don't need one without the other, because biological parenting and spiritual parenting share the same relational goals and relational dynamics, whatever the Bible has to say to people about parenting Every Christian should be listening to because those instructions would be applicable to every Christian in their call to be spiritual parents. You get it? So with that in mind, we ask the question, what does verses 3 and 5, as it pertains to parenting, how does that tell us anything with regard as to why the next generation is important to us? Well, you get the answer in those two images that the psalmist uses at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, respectively, which is the fruit of the womb and the arrows in the hands of a warrior. What is he talking about there? Why is he referring to kids, right, as fruit of the womb and arrows in the hands of the warrior? And furthermore, what does that have to do about why the next generation is so important to us? Well, to explain, let me give you a beautiful quote, an insightful quote from my favorite theologian by the name of Herman Bovink. Listen to what he says with regard to children, which represents the next generation. He says this, quote, children 
are the glory of marriage, the treasure of parents, the wealth of family life. They develop within their parents an entire cluster of virtues such as paternal love and maternal affection, devotion and self-denial, care for the future, involvement in society, the art of nurturing. With their parents, children place constraints or, excuse me, restraints upon ambition, reconcile the contrast, soften the differences and bring their souls even closer together, provide them with a common interest that lies outside of them and opens their eyes and hearts to their surroundings for their posterity. As with living mirrors, they show their parents their own virtues and faults, force them to reform themselves, mitigating their criticisms and teaching them how hard it is to govern a person. The family exerts a reforming power upon the parents. Who would recognize in the sensible, dutiful father the carefree youth of yesterday? And who would ever have imagined that that lighthearted girl would later be changed by her child into a mother who renders the greatest sacrifices with joyful acquiescence? The family transforms ambition into service, miserliness into manifest. Uh, munificence, the weak into strong, cowards into heroes, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. Imagine there were no marriage and family, and humanity would, to use Calvin's crass expression, turn into a pigsty. What's he saying here? He's saying children, the next generation, they're like the shiniest, cleanest mirrors of character that reflect back to you all of your selfishness, all of your issues, all of your arrogance and pomp, all of your sins. In other words, the next generation, more than any other group in society, reflect back to the current generation, the parent generation, all of our evilness, of how evil we are, how self-absorbed and selfish we are. Why is that? Well, think about it, okay? We live in a society that we value people and individuals and groups based on what people can give back to us, right? You give to me what I want, what I need. I'll give back to you what you want and what you need, right? You scratch my back, I scratch yours, quid pro quo. But when it comes to children, they can't return the blessings you give to them, right? For those of you who are parents, right? Do your kids give anything really back to you that you pour into them comparatively? No, Right? They're the one group of people within society where you pour all your resources, all of your efforts, all of your blessings, right? And you get nothing in return. There's no return. It's a one way transaction, it's a really one way love, which means what? Our concern for the next generation also functions as a barometer of how selfish or unselfish we really are. And because that is true, it also means that. The next generation, more than any other generation, is calling upon us and challenging us more than any other group to not be as evil, to not be as selfish, to not be as self-absorbed, to not just only be concerned for just me, myself, and I. By the way, that's what the whole point behind this imagery of the fruit of the womb and the arrows in the hands of a warrior. Let me explain what I mean. Think about a tree that has tons of ripe fruit, okay? From the standpoint... Of the fruit, the fruit does nothing for the tree, right? The fruit doesn't protect the tree. The fruit doesn't provide nourishment for the tree. The fruit offers no benefit to the tree whatsoever. And yet, if you reverse it, we see the opposite at play. The tree does provide nourishment for the fruit, right? The tree does protect the fruit. The tree pours all of its resources, getting nothing in return, all the benefits, all the resources for the sake of the fruit. What is the imagery here? The fruit is calling upon the tree to not be so selfish, but to give of itself for the sake of the fruit, right? And think about the imagery of a womb, a woman, right, and the fruit of that womb. 
when a woman has a child, whether biologically speaking or spiritually speaking, because she's discipling somebody, right, that fruit, that next generation, that child will call upon that woman to not be so self-absorbed, to not be so self-fixated on themselves, to not just want to say, I want, I want, I want, but instead say, what can I give? How can I help you? How can I enable you, right? The whole idea of a fruit of the womb is to give this idea that the next generation will always challenge and call upon you to be selfless, to be less evil. Same idea with the other imagery of an arrow, right? Tons of arrows in the hands of a soldier, soldier, right? Soldier. Why? You know, when a young man has a bunch of arrows in his back, like he's that guy from Lord of the Rings. What's, what's his name? You know, the Orlando Bloom guy, right? When a young man looks like that, what is he conveying? He's ready to face danger. He's ready to take risks. He's ready to put his own personal comforts, his own personal ease, right, behind and put someone else's needs, someone else's comforts, someone else's security ahead of his own, right? Again, an arrow representing children is like a quiver filled with them for a warrior. What is that? That's a young man who has children to where those children are calling upon this man to be selfless, to think less of himself and more for the sake of others, right? Whereas before he had children, he'd probably run away in the opposite direction, not want to face any sort of discomfort, any sort of danger. Once a man receives kids and he has the responsibility and burden of fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood, biological fatherhood whatsoever, he finds within himself a call to duty to put his own cravings for selfish comfort and ease and put it aside and put others ahead of himself, right? Here you see, again, the next generation challenging and calling upon men to not be so self-absorbed, to not be so self-fixated on their own desires and needs. Do you need the next generation? Yes, you do need the next generation. You know why? Because they will open your eyes more than any other group on who you really are, namely, an evil person that needs to change. Again, you need the next generation because they will open your eyes more than any other group on who you really are, namely, an evil person, a selfish person that needs to change. You get it? Now, with that said, do you realize what all this means? It means for those of you in here who don't think about the next generation, you don't concern yourself with the next generation, you know what you are? You're like that person who never looks in the mirror. <laughs> you ever see a person who never looks in the mirror? Like smudges all over their faces, hair all messed up, buttons all misbuttoned, and you walk around thinking there's nothing wrong with you when there's everything wrong with you, right? You're like a person who never looks at the metaphorical mirror of character to where you have character flaws, you have character issues, you have character discrepancies, and you walk around thinking that you're totally fine, you're totally put together when in fact you are not. And I got to tell you, that kind of blindness you cannot afford in this day and age. Why is that? Well, think about it. We live in a time and age where our generation, our generation, we love to cry out through social media of how we're fighting against injustice, how we're fighting against selfish and perverted, selfish, evil people who cause atrocities all over the world, right? Causing the Me Too culture, the rape culture, the sex trafficking culture, the systemic racism, right? We say, I'm against that. I am not for that. And yet, because we have no concern for the next generation, we don't realize how incredibly hip hypocritical we are 
and how inconsistent we are by having no concern for that next generation. We don't see the hypocrisy. Listen, if you really claim to be an advocate for justice to where you really want to portray yourself for someone who's concerned for those that no one is concerned for, think about and be concerned for the next generation. Think about the children. Because they, more than any other group, will really prove whether or not your concerns are genuine or whether you're just using it as a platform just to get all people to eyes on you, to notice you. Look at me. I'm all for ending sex trafficking. Oh, aren't you spectacular? Aren't you incredible? Aren't you the good Samaritan? Hey, you want to sign up for children's men? No, no, I'm not into kids. Oh. Oh. You're a champion for justice. You really have compassion that hardly anyone has compassion for. Hmm? Now, some of you are hearing this and... Not that you want to disagree with me, not that you don't like me, but you do disagree with me, right? Nothing personal, but you're hearing what I'm saying in particular about how this notion of the next generation challenges us to be less evil, to be less selfish, less, less sun- sinful. And you hear that like, oh, pastor, um, it sounds good, but I don't think it's true. And the reason why you say that is because you look at the world today and you notice that doesn't seem to be the effect on our world society. I mean, you might say to me something like, uh, Pastor, I don't know if you know this, but do you know which demographic is the poorest in our world today? Who are the poorest group of people in the world today? Children. Yeah. Who are the group of people who are being murdered by the millions to where it compares and even exceeds some of the horrific genocides of our world history? Children, right? Abortion. Who are the groups of people that are victimized more than any other group in society? Children. Right, uh, One uh, sociologist by the name of David Finkelhorf, who teaches up at University of New Hampshire, he once said this, quote, children are the most victimized segment of the world population. And so you hear all of this, and you're like, well, pastor, if what you're saying is true, that, that the next generation by design is supposed to challenge us to be less evil, why is it that they bring out more evil in us in terms of how we treat them collectively as a world society? That's a great question. The answer leads me to my next point. You need the next generation because you need Jesus. Read again verse 1 of our passage where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now this is curious. The psalmist's main emphasis is on the next generation, about children, about how important they are and the effect that they have on us. So why does he begin with huge emphasis on the Lord? Why does he focus on God first? I mean, given his whole theme here, wouldn't it make more sense for him to say, unless the next generation builds a house, unless the next generation guards the city, it's all in vain. Why does he begin, and why does he make sure that we make sure we begin with the Lord? Why God? Go back to that quote from Bavink for just a moment. Embedded in that paragraph, right in the middle of it, he says something very interesting. He says this, quote, that children are... Living mirrors that show their parents their own virtue and faults. Children are living mirrors that show their parents their own virtue and faults. Now, this is very interesting coming from a biblical scholar like Bavink. Because when you read him saying this and you know how much Bible that he knows, you would venture to guess that he's trying to make some sort of connection, an allusion to something else in the Bible that's referred to as a mirror. Do you guys know what else is described as a mirror in the Bible? God's law, the law of God. 
James chapter 1, starting in verse 22, we read, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For you, if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, God's word, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Interesting. The Bible is also described as a mirror. And if you further investigate how the Bible goes on to describe the functions of the law of God, you'll notice it's virtually identical with the way that I'm describing the next generation. Like the next generation, the law confronts you and challenges you by saying you're evil and that you should be better. You shouldn't be this way. The law of God is like a mirror to your face that confronts how evil and selfish and perverted you are. And therefore, it's telling you tacitly, change. But here's the thing. Just like how we disregard and we disrespect the next generation, when the law of God confronts us, what's our reaction? Do we obey it? No. We disregard the law of God too. And we abuse the law as well to where we disobey it as well. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7 with regard to this dynamic. He says this, quote, When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes so that the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I am too human, a slave to sin. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the law of God not only reveals how evil we are and how sinful we are, it also provokes us to sin. Not because the law is sinful, but because the law, all it does is reveal our sinfulness. It doesn't change our sinfulness. Let me say that again. The law of God, it only shows how sinful we are. It does not have the power to change us from our sinfulness, right? The Bible says that overall. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans. Paul is saying that over and over. And if what I am saying is true, that you see the same parallel dynamic when it comes to the next generation, that they can reveal how evil you are, that must mean that it has no power to change you either, right? Listen to me, you know, couples who are married and who are having a terrible marriage, one of the worst decisions that they can make is to say, you know what, I hate you, you hate me, how can we better love one another? I know, let's have a kid. <laughs> then this kid will challenge us and inspire us to treat each other better and we'll be better husbands, better wives, better sons, better daughters, better citizens. Yes, no. Children will reveal how evil you are, yes, but they do not have the power to make you less evil. It does not. Just like the law of God can reveal how evil you are, it does not have the power to change you from being less evil as well. You guys get that? And yet, just like the law of God, the next generation, if you're exposed to it, can point you, just like the law of God does, to the one who does have the power to change you to where you're no longer evil, but now you are a saint. The next generation, like the law of God, can point you to Jesus. In other words, the next generation can point you to your need for the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though you are so evil to where you disregard, you disobey, you disavow, 
and you disrespect God by wanting to be your own God manifested by how you mistreat and show no concern for the next generation, God still loved you so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, so that what? He could be your savior substitute. That is, he could take the full consequences, pay for the full penalty of all your sins, past, present, and future, right? We know this. But here's the question. How many of you in here were there 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross on the hill of Calvary? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Right? Anyone was there? No. When Jesus came and died for you, did you even exist? No. Who were you in reference to Jesus when he was dying on the cross? You were the future generation, right? When Jesus died on the cross for you, he did it way before you even exist. What is that? That's a God who shows that he is concerned for the next generation and the next generation after that and so forth and so forth. Isn't that interesting? When we try to be our own God, the next generation suffers. Our God, who is the true God, is willing to suffer for the sake of the next generation. Who is the superior God? Who is better off in this world if you are God or if Christ is God? How are the generations better suited? When Jesus is Lord or when you try to be Lord and make everyone believe that you are Lord. Jesus loved us even before you could do nothing for him. You didn't even exist. What could you give to Jesus when you didn't even exist when he came? Nothing, right? That's the gospel. And when you understand this gospel... Then and only then will you change for the better. Then and only then will you be less evil. Then and only then will the generation be blessed because of you. But here's the thing. You cannot understand this gospel until you're constantly aware of your need for the gospel. And one of the most practical ways in which you can constantly be reminded of your need for the gospel is constantly expose yourself to the next generation. Because as I said before, the next generation more than any other group will practically remind you of how much you need Jesus. Yeah. I have four kids. It wasn't until I had my children that I said, Jesus, have mercy on me. I've been an active prayer warrior when I became a dad, right? That same principle applies to you for those of you who are not parents, but yet you're always around kids. Jesus, right? You're having a personal revival, so to speak. At least you're crying out to Jesus more. When you are exposed to the next generation, you are also exposed to your need for the gospel. Do you need the next generation? Oh, yes, you do. Because you need the one that they constantly remind you of who you need. You need Christ. So here's my question. Are you concerned for the next generation? Do you think about the next generation? You think they have nothing to give to you, but, oh, friend, I'm telling you now. Just as Paul says the law of God is a gift from God because it shows you of your need for Christ, the next generation is God's gift to you because they show you better than anyone of something that you try to deny and yet you desperately need. You need Christ. Are you concerned for the next generation? At this time, I want to try and um, help you put some teeth to today's message, some practical next steps. And so first, I'd like to begin by saying, if you're here today and you're investigating Christianity and you're someone who feels like in light of today's message, as well as the cumulative effect of other things, other conversations you've had leading up to today to where you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, please come talk to me. 
please come talk to Pastor James. We would want to talk to you, and we would love to pray for you and to help you get oriented of what you should do next so that you can uh, go on this great adventure of knowing who Christ is and how meaningful he is to you, to me, to all of us. Okay, number two. For those of you who are Christians and you're a member of this body and you're not a parent, have you signed up yet to help out with our Christian education ministry, right? We are in desperate need, okay? We are in desperate need. Specifically, we need at least seven more volunteers, non-parent volunteers, to sign up for CE so that you could give one Sunday a month, one Sunday a month, so that the next generation could benefit, right? But more conversely, so that you could benefit in deepening your understanding of your need for Jesus, So if you haven't signed up yet, please come talk to Hannah Kang. Please talk to Sarah or to Jean. We need you. Talk to Susan. We need you guys to really have your conviction to heart, okay? If you are a parent, you've already been signed up to help out with CE. Without your permission, we just signed you up, right? Why? Our expectation here is if you are a parent, we don't expect you just to be your biological to just to be the biological parents of your children. We expect you to also be their spiritual parents, right? And I'm going to challenge all of you parents to not just be settling to be biological parents of your kids, be the spiritual parents of your children as well. Use this as an opportunity to allow your children to see you in a context where they see you in such a way that you and Christ are like this, right? And practically what that means, come on time, When we need you to come on time, prepare for the lessons that we ask you to teach and make yourself available in such a way that your kids will see that you want them to yearn for heaven as much as you want them to yearn for Harvard, right? I'm serious. Can you be spiritual parents, you biological parents, right? Can you take on that challenge? Finally, I'm asking all of you, let's pray for our kids. I set aside every Tuesday afternoon praying through all of our children. I pray for all 74 of them. We have 74 kids. And if you include our visitors, we have 81 children. Could you set aside 15 minutes on one day of the week and just pray for them? You don't have to know them all by name, right? Just pray for our children. They're living in a time that is so much harder than what we had to grow up in when when it comes to our faith. Would you be willing to spend some time on your knees praying for our children? I tell you, one of the practical effects that come out of it is that you start loving the kids more. Try it out sometimes. The more you pray for someone, funny, you start loving them more. Would you consider praying for our kids, that God would cause them to flourish and even exceed this generation for the furtherance of God's kingdom?